Hello again, everyone. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 180, and today we're diving into the nursing care of burns. So if you need a primer on burns and the foundations of that, I want you to go and check out episode 149 and then come back to this one, okay? All righty. So before we dive into talking about the nursing care of patients with burns, I do want to take a minute and do our listener shout out. So this listener shout out goes out to Felicia. So Felicia says, I love your podcast so much. I'm a nursing student and listen to dreadful lectures all day, and I get so excited to end lecture and listen to you. Your voice is so calm, soothing, and passionate. Okay, she says, that sounds weird, but it makes a difference. I have learned so much and always look forward to more. Thank you again for helping me get through nursing school. You're a lifesaver. I have recommended you to all my fellow students. Thank you so much, Felicia. I hear you. I've sat through many, many dreadful lectures myself, and your kind words really made my day. So thank you so much, and thank you for sharing the podcast with your friends. I hope you're doing well, and I can't wait to get an email from you when you have got your license, so make sure you do that. So again, today's topic is about the nursing care of burns, and go back to episode 149 if you want kind of an introduction to burns before you dive into this. So the first thing that we're going to talk about here is the pathophysiology of burn injury. So a really important concept that you need to understand with burns is that The damage and the severity of that damage depends on the duration of exposure and the temperature that it was exposed to. Anytime you get into temperatures above 44 degrees Celsius, that's going to cause cells to die. And cellular damage, cellular death is going to continue until that heat source is removed or the individual is removed from the heat source and the tissue is cooled to normal levels. Now, there are three zones of burn injury, the zone of coagulation, the zone of stasis, and the zone of hyperemia. So that zone of coagulation is that area with the maximum damage. The tissue loss here is permanent, irreversible. You're not getting that tissue back. Now, the zone of stasis, this surrounds that coagulation zone. And this zone, the zone of stasis, is characterized by decreased tissue perfusion. So it is possible to save this tissue with prompt treatment. If we can get the tissue perfused, then this tissue could be salvageable. Now, if there are complications, like if the patient develops an infection, maybe they're hypotensive, which would definitely affect tissue perfusion, And if there's edema, especially severe edema, all of these can potentiate the problems and this tissue may not be salvageable. So you really want to avoid complications. And then the zone of hyperemia, this is that outermost area of the injury where tissue has definitely more perfusion. And unless the patient has a very severe complication like prolonged hypoperfusion or severe sepsis, 
this tissue is likely going to recover. So we've looked at what's going on at the tissues. Let's talk about the body's systemic response to this burn injury. So in addition to that tissue death that's going on, one of the most significant factors in burn injury is the shifting of fluid. So when that tissue is burned, capillaries become more permeable. So the capillaries are damaged, right? They're going to become more permeable, allowing fluid to seep out of the intravascular space into the surrounding interstitial tissues. Additionally, that sodium-potassium pump that mechanism fails, and when that mechanism fails, sodium is then able to enter the cell, and what happens when sodium enters? It brings water with it, so then we get intercellular edema on top of that. So the overall effect are massive fluid shifts, and What's happening again is fluid is going from the intravascular space, the blood vessel space itself, into the interstitial and intercellular spaces. So if you're at all fuzzy on this concept of fluid shifting and third spacing, I want you to go to the website and read the article about third spacing. So if you just do a search, it will definitely come up for you. But the short, short version is that when fluid leaves the intravascular space where it's inside the blood vessels and goes and sits in the interstitial tissues or sits inside of a cell, it's not contributing to the patient's hemodynamics. It's not contributing to cardiac output. It's not a part of the patient's blood pressure maintenance. It is not physiologically active is what we say. So as you can imagine, having all this fluid leave the intravascular space can very drastically and very negatively affect that patient's hemodynamic balance. So the patient has hypovolemia, okay? So hypovolemia intravascularly, and that's compounded also by increased insensible water loss because the patient is going to lose water through that wound. It can be up to 10 times more than what it normally is. And what we end up with is patients with significant burn injury can be severely, severely hypotensive due to fluid shifts and fluid losses. So what does the body do when it has this tremendous insult from a significant burn injury? Well, initially, you know, the body loves to try to keep things going as long as it can. So it's going to work very hard to keep key organs alive. And it will do this by shunting blood toward the two most important organs. Can you guess what those might be? going to be the brain and the heart. And when we shunt blood towards those two organs, we get diminished blood flow to other organs in the body. And that can lead to organ dysfunction and in severe cases, even organ failure. And in really severe cases, multi-system organ failure. Additionally, cytokines and other inflammatory mediators are released from the site of the injury, and this has systemic effects as well. 
So for example, some of the things that might happen system-wide are in the renal system, hypoperfusion and the breakdown of myoglobin lead to acute renal failure. In the GI system, the patient could have ileus, splanchic hypoperfusion, dilated bowel, all kinds of things. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Cardiovascular, the heart would have decreased contractility. If it's not getting enough oxygen, if it's going through this massive inflammatory systemic response, you're going to have decreased contractility and reduced cardiac output. In the respiratory system, those inflammatory mediators can cause bronchoconstriction, and patients with burn injury can also develop ARDS. In the immune system, there is a non-specific downregulation of the immune response, putting these patients at super high risk for infection. And then a general thing that I found really interesting is that the basal metabolic rate can increase by up to three times its baseline. So these patients' metabolic demands are ramped way up in severe burn injury. So let's talk a little bit about the phases of burn management. There are three phases. So the patient's had a burn. They're in the hospital. We have three phases. So the resuscitation phase is that time from the initial injury, and it continues until the capillary integrity has returned to baseline. And when that capillary integrity is back to normal, it's no longer leaking that fluid into the interstitial space, so we don't have that edema happening, okay? So resuscitation phase is the time from the initial injury and continues until capillary integrity has returned to baseline. And the fluid losses that the patient is having have been restored, and then the patient will go through something called spontaneous diuresis. And this is the signal that the capillary membrane, again, has retained its integrity and is no longer leaking that fluid into the interstitial space. So the fluid is back in the intravascular space, and the patient starts basically peeing it out, diuresing. Then we have the acute phase. And this is the time from that diuresis onset until the burn wound is closed. And this can be a very long time. And then the third phase is the rehabilitative phase. And the focus on this phase is on continued wound healing and the prevention of contractures, minimizing or preventing scars, managing any functional disability and also providing a lot of psychosocial support for the patient and their family because, as you know, burns can be incredibly, incredibly devastating. So one of the things I want to talk about before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of caring for a patient with a burn is, let's say you are the flight critical care nurse and you've been called out to a burn, and the question is, will this patient go to a burn center? Or maybe you're the nurse in the ER and a patient comes in and you have to quickly decide, does this patient warrant referral to a burn center? 
So there's actually some criteria around this. And the reason you want to get them to a burn center if they meet criteria is because those places are set up to take care of patients with burns. And you definitely want them to get to the place where they need to be for the best possible care. So there is a great website called Ameriburn, A-M-E-R-I-B-U-R-N, and they list out all of the criteria because there's quite a few. Um, But if you could go to that website, Ameriburn, and I'll put a link to it in the episode notes for you, you'll see all that criteria listed out. So an example of a patient that would meet burn center referral criteria are patients who have third degree burns of any size. Partial thickness burns greater than 10% total body surface area or burns to major joints, to the face, the hands, the feet, the perineum, or genitalia. And again, there's several more criteria, so I want you to go check out that website if you're at all interested in seeing what patients would warrant referral to a burn center. Okay, so now we're going to care for our patient who has a burn. So initially, you know, that first 24 to 36 hours are really, really critical in managing the patient who has a burn injury. In addition to, you know, determining the size of the burn, the depth of the burn, all of that, it's also important to determine if the burn is due to thermal, electrical, or chemical sources. So because different types of burns will have different types of complications, different kinds of implications, you want to know, was this thermal, was this electrical, or was this chemical? You also want to be sure to remove anything that is potentially constricting before that edema sets in. So watches, bracelets, rings, anything that could be constricting on the patient on an extremity anywhere on their body, get it off. That would be an excellent test question, you guys. You're also managing the airway. Probably one of the very first things that you're going to be doing for a patient who comes in burned is managing the airway. I want you to be very, very suspicious that airway involvement has occurred if the patient has any burns to their face or if they were inside an enclosed space. I would say face and neck, they could have definitely breathed in some smoke or toxic products. And if the individual was in an enclosed space, be very suspicious that the airway has been compromised. But you will always assess and you will always protect the airway in all of your patients until you're confident that it is stabilized. Providing oxygen is also a really important component when you're working with your burn injury patients. So carbon monoxide poisoning is a very key contributor to patient mortality in burn injury. So what you'll likely see is the MD ordering a carboxyhemoglobin level and supplemental oxygen at 100% FiO2. Recall that carbon monoxide binds very, very strongly to that iron ion in heme. I I believe the affinity that it has for that ion is about 240 times stronger than oxygen has. So it gets on there and it hangs on really, really tight. So providing that high flow supplemental oxygen at 100% FiO2 helps to shorten 
how long carbon monoxide can hold onto that ion. And then once the patient is no longer exposed to carbon monoxide, then we start replacing it with oxygen and the patient gets past that carbon monoxide poisoning component. But that would be a key reason for that oxygen supplementation. Also, if the airway is involved, you're going to be giving oxygen to anyone who's in any kind of a respiratory distress. You also want to manage the patient's respirations and assess them very carefully. This will be on your test. So if you drifted away, come back to me. This will be on your test. Circumferential burns can have a constricting or tourniquet-like effect on the body. So what do you think would happen if that circumferential burn, a burn that went all the way around, was on the torso? That could have a very constricting effect on the patient's ability to take nice deep breaths, right? Especially when those burns are full thickness burns, circling the chest wall, compliance will be decreased. And again, respirations are shallow. So you're going to be monitoring the patient for those shallow, constricted respirations, probably also breathing fast to kind of make up for the fact that they can't take a deep breath, probably also hypoxic. So you want to be checking those oxygen levels. Many patients with circumferential burns to the chest wall will need to be intubated and receive mechanical ventilation. Additionally, the patient who has that circumferential burn, who has that decreased chest wall compliance, could get an escarotomy, and that is basically surgical incisions through that escar, that burned tissue, down into that subcutaneous layer that allows for greater chest wall compliance, more ease of respirations. Another key factor in taking care of these patients with burn injury is fluid replacement. So again, those fluid shifts can be very, very detrimental for your patient. Again, we talked about this earlier. Your capillaries are going to get more leaky. The fluid is going to seep into the interstitial space. The sodium-potassium mechanism, that pump, is failed So the sodium will enter the cell, bringing water with it, causing intercellular edema. So again, massive fluid shifts. The fluid leaves the intravascular space where it does contribute to cardiac output. And now the patient is hypovolemic, has reduced cardiac output, reduced tissue perfusion. They're hypotensive. So we're going to replace their fluids. The Parkland formula is the most widely used calculation to determine the volume of fluid that each patient requires. This would also be a great test question for you guys. In order to use the Parkland formula, you need a couple of things. You need the patient's body weight in kilograms and the percent of total body surface area. So for adults, that calculation will be 4 mils of fluid multiplied by the percent of total body surface area, and this is excluding first-degree burns, multiplied by their body weight in kilograms. And that gives you a total amount of fluid that this individual will need. So let's say you have a patient who has a 25% total body surface area burn, that is anything above a first-degree burn, and they weigh 50 kilograms. 
they will get a total. So you take four times 25 times 50, and you get a total of 5,000 mils, which is five liters. And we don't just give this five liters all at once. We want to be very careful and judicious with how we do that. So 50% of that fluid is given over the first eight hours. And then the remaining 50% is given over the next 16 hours. So the total fluid volume replacement of five liters will take 24 hours to do. This would be an excellent, excellent test question to ask you, How many mils per hour will the patient get in the first eight hours? And then how many mils per hour will they get in the 16 hours following? That would be an excellent question. So maybe do a little bit of practice around those, you guys. All right. So the goal with this fluid replacement is to counteract the fluid shifts that the patient is having. We're correcting intravascular hypovolemia and improving cardiac output And of course, with that, we get improved end organ perfusion. So the most commonly used fluid that you will see for the purpose of resuscitating burn patients is lactated ringers. And the reason for that is because the components in lactated ringers more closely resemble that extracellular fluid. Okay, so we talked about the fluids. That's a big one. Anytime you talk fluid replacement or the patient has fluid shifts, I hope your mind is also going to, I bet there's electrolyte issues here as well. And yes, the patient with burn injury is at high risk for mainly sodium and potassium imbalances. And this occurs throughout the resuscitation and the acute phase. So in the resuscitation phase, I want you to be very careful that you're monitoring your patient for hyperkalemia. And why do you think they'd be at risk for hyperkalemia in that resuscitation phase? Remember that potassium loves to live inside the cell. So when cells are destroyed, when they die, they break open. The potassium that was inside the cell is released. That puts the patient for high risk for hyperkalemia. Additionally, we have renal impairment, and that's going to contribute to hyperkalemia because the the kidneys are not excreting it properly, and we have acid-base imbalance. When you have acid-base imbalances, you often have electrolyte imbalances as well. And in general, the imbalance of this hyperkalemia is typically resolved as that acid-base balance is restored. Then we also want to be monitoring for hypokalemia in that resuscitation phase due to the fluid, due to hemodilution, and also due to fluid and electrolyte losses that are coming out through the wound itself. So if the patient is hypokalemic, We deal with that by replacing potassium. So hypokalemia in the acute phase, so the resuscitation phase is over, we're now in the acute phase, that hypokalemia can be due to hemodilution again. It can be due to diuresis. They're just losing potassium in the urine. The patient may have NG tube suctioning. We can lose potassium that way. They may be vomiting, have diarrhea, And again, as the acid-base balance improves, there are potassium shifts. So the potassium can actually go too far the other way and be hypokalemic. 
The patient could get hypokalemic even due to long sessions of hydrotherapy. And of course, you're addressing the underlying cause, trying to determine what's causing the hypokalemia, addressing that if you can, and replacing potassium as needed. What about sodium? So hyponatremia commonly occurs in the resuscitation phase due to that third spacing of fluid. Also, fluid and electrolyte losses, again, through the wound itself. The patient could be vomiting, have diarrhea, that NG tube suctioning. All of those things can also affect sodium balance. And if hypotonic solutions were used, that can cause hyponatremia. Treatment involves, of course, as always, when we can, we address the underlying cause, may include IV replacement of sodium if needed. And then in the acute phase, the hyponatremia is typically due to continued losses through the wound, can also be due to those long hydrotherapy sessions, hemodilution, and diuresis, as that fluid shifts back into the intravascular space, the patient's going to diurese, they could lose sodium in that way. In addition to doing things like limiting the hydrotherapy sessions, mainly the key intervention in the acute phase for hyponatremia, typically all they need to do is limit free water intake, meaning the patient's not going to be drinking plain water. I mean, they will, but they'll be limiting that. The patient will be on what's called fluid restriction, and that is generally enough to correct a mild hyponatremia, okay? All right, so that was a lot about electrolyte imbalance. What about cardiac function, and hemodynamics. So patients who have extensive burn injury should definitely be on continuous ECG monitoring. You will also be watching the patient for any signs of hemodynamic compromise. And I know we talked about the patient being hypovolemic. You're also watching for fluid volume overload. The massive third spacing that occurs Yes, the patient does lose fluid volume from the intravascular space, but we talked about that fluid going somewhere, right? And we talked about it being very detrimental. Well, that fluid can go into the intercellular space, that was one, and into the interstitial space, and that was the other. And that interstitial space can be pulmonary. So the patient can definitely get pulmonary edema. So you'll be keeping a close eye on the respiratory status as well when they have those massive fluid shifts. And that is how someone can be hypovolemic intravascularly, but fluid volume overloaded interstitially in the third space and causing respiratory compromise. Speaking of respiratory status, earlier I mentioned that these patients can go into ARDS. So in addition to that pulmonary edema, that respiratory distress, Patients with burn injury can get acute respiratory distress syndrome, and that can be from direct lung injury. Maybe they inhaled fumes, uh, toxic chemicals in the air, what have you, or also by that inflammatory response that is associated with the burn itself or complications from infection. So you'll be monitoring their pulmonary status like a hawk. If you want to learn more about ARDS, check out episode 137. How about peripheral blood flow? This will be an exam question to you guys. Edema 
and those circumferential burns can drastically impede blood flow. And when we talk about blood flow to the periphery, how do we assess for that? You want to do frequent assessment of CSM, circulation, sensation, and movement. And you will be doing that frequently, anything distal to a burn injury to ensure that any complications are not occurring. And if they do, you catch them very early. Again, escharotomies may be needed in cases of significantly reduced arterial flow. And again, that's where they cut through the escar into the subcutaneous tissue. It allows the tissues to swell without putting undue pressure on the vasculature and impeding blood flow. Let's talk some more about the renal system. We talked very briefly about it in the beginning. So hypoperfusion can lead to acute kidney injury and even acute renal failure. So patients with burns above about 15% total body surface area should definitely have an indwelling urinary catheter in place so that you can do that very careful monitoring of their urine output. Recall that a goal urine output for an adult is 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram per hour. So you'll definitely be watching to make sure they're putting out enough urine. And in some cases, you're going to be expecting more than that because of the diuresis that is occurring. You will also be obtaining urine for urinalysis to assess for the presence of myoglobin in that initial phase of treatment. Myoglobin in the urine is due to, again, that tissue breakdown, and when the myoglobin gets into the kidneys, it can be very destructive to that fragile kidney tissue. So if you see myoglobin in the urine, you want to be uh, very, very hypervigilant that we catch that early and we treat it, and we treat it with a rapid administration of fluids and osmotic diuretics like mannitol to flush the renal tubules. And then we want to make sure that we're monitoring the renal system in an ongoing way. So that ongoing renal system monitoring includes BUN and creatinine. We'll be getting those labs and assessing those probably daily, maybe more often than daily. Urinalysis will be done to assess for urine glucose, to assess for urine sodium levels. If the patient has an indwelling urinary catheter and there's a very good chance that they might, they're at high risk for infection. So any suspicious urine, cloudiness, foul smelling, fever, other signs of infection will necessitate the patient getting a urinalysis to determine if they have a UTI. With the GI system, I mentioned this briefly, gastric dilation can occur due to a paralytic ileus. So you're going to be listening to your patient's bowel sounds in the in, in that very initial phase, maybe as often as hourly or every two hours, and then probably more like every four hours or so throughout the resuscitation phase. Of course, always follow your preceptor or unit, your facilities protocol on that. If an ileus is detected, these patients will get a nasogastric tube most likely. This will be utilized for gastric decompression and to prevent aspiration, as well as for feeding. So burn injury patients will also receive what we call GI prophylaxis. So if you hear the pharmacist talking about GI prophylaxis, what they're talking about is the prevention of a gastric ulcer. 
And burn patients are at very high risk for the formation of gastric ulcers. And this typically involves an H2 receptor blocker such as famotidine or uh, pantoprazole, which is a proton pump inhibitor, or sucralfate. Additionally, it's recommended that these patients get enteral nutrition as soon as possible. Enteral nutrition, again, feeding coming in through that enteral route, through that NG tube, or maybe it's an OG tube if the patient is intubated. If the patient is intubated, we don't put the nasogastric tube in through the nose. We put it in through the mouth, through the oral cavity, so it becomes an OG tube. And so you might hear NG tube, you might hear OG tube. It's all landing in the G, in the gastric area. So we want to initiate enteral nutrition through the NG tube, the OG tube, as soon as possible to protect that gastric mucosa, also to maintain gut motility. And remember, these patients have super high metabolic demands. We need to meet those metabolic demands. Okay, let's talk a little bit about immunity. Patients with burns, we talked about this a little bit earlier, are at very high risk for infection with sepsis and multi-system organ failure being the leading causes of death after that initial resuscitation period has passed. So obviously, the wound itself is the most common source of infection because basically there's zero tissue integrity there, zero normal protective mechanisms in place. The patient's own bacterial flora can get in there and cause a bloodstream system-wide infection. So you have to take uh, very, very careful care of that wound ensuring always keeping the patient very clean, always using your PPE. Your hand hygiene is massively, massively important. Some facilities may do routine, frequent wound cultures to assess for any infection, you know, catching it as early as possible, and you will be inspecting these wounds at least daily, okay? All right, speaking of wounds, you know, it goes without saying that burns require, you know, very complex, very specialized wound care. The basic principles of standard wound care apply, you know, the goal in most cases, I would say, of keeping that wound moist and free from infection. Now, this gets deep. There's a lot. We could talk about burn wound care all day, so maybe we'll do that in a future episode. But just know, infection control is one of your key key patient safety interventions when it comes to burn patients. Another issue that burn patients face is inability to regulate body temperature. They've lost a huge part of one of their biggest organs of their body, and they lose body heat through those wounds. So they're at high, high risk for hypothermia. So, you know, these burn units are kept very, very warm just in general, You can also use warming blankets with these patients, fluid warmers so that any fluids instilled into the patient are not cold, they're actually warmed, and lamps. All of these things may be utilized to maintain a body temp of 99.6 to 101 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a core body temperature. So if your patient has a Foley catheter, you want to make sure that they're getting the Foley catheter inserted that has a temperature probe on it. You can get core body temperature in other ways, but that way is just super convenient and very, you know, very, very accurate. Okay, let's talk about pain management. One of the very, very key factors in treating patients with burn is managing the severe pain that they have. 
Many patients will be on continuous opioid medication like a fentanyl infusion, a morphine infusion, possibly also IV anxiolytics like midazolam. And as that tissue in that skin heals, like if they get a skin graft and it's healing and the tissue is healing, itching can be really, really problematic and troublesome for the patient. So an antihistamine may be used for that as well. Okay, let's just touch very briefly on the rehabilitation phase. So again, the key mainstays in this phase are addressing the emotional scars as well as the physical ones and the long-term healing of that wound. For some patients, the rehabilitation phase can last years. And some key things that you'll be working with these patients on during this phase are addressing impaired mobility, joint involvement, contractures, things like that can drastically affect their mobility. You want to increase independence with their ADLs as much as you can. And of course, always supporting the patient and the family psychologically. Okay, who wants to do a little bit of pod quizzing before we close this one out? Okay, I know you guys love these. So if you like this pod quiz format, I want you to check out Study Sesh. I'm going to link to that in the episode notes. It's basically my private podcast that is 90% pod quizzes. So if this helps you review, retain, and learn information and do it in a way that helps you free yourself from your desk, highly recommend that you check it out. Okay, so how pod quizzing works, if you're new to it is, I'm going to ask a question, pause for a minute to give you time to answer, and then tell you the answer. It's pod quizzing. Okay, ready? Which zone is this? It is the zone surrounding that initial maximum damage area. The tissue in this area has decreased perfusion but is salvageable provided there are no complications. That is the zone of stasis. And then what was the name of the zone with the maximum damage? That was the zone of coagulation. And then what is the outermost zone where the tissue will probably recover, again, providing there's no substantial complications? That is the zone of hyperemia. Very, very good. Let's talk a little bit about the resuscitation phase. It is the time from the initial injury until what? It is that stage from initial injury until capillary integrity has returned to baseline and those fluid losses have been restored. What signals the end of the resuscitation phase and the beginning of that acute phase? That diuresis onset when the patient starts spontaneously diuresing. Okay, very, very good. Um, what about the Parkland formula? Do you remember the calculation for the Parkland formula? So for an adult, the formula is 
4 mils of fluid multiplied by the percent of total body surface area multiplied by the patient's body weight in kilograms. Very good. And once you have that total fluid volume, how much are you giving over the first eight hours? Fifty percent. And then what about the remaining 16 hours? The other 50 percent. What is a normal goal urine output per hour for an adult? Zero point five to one mil per kilogram. And then one more. What is the most common fluid used for that fluid resuscitation, fluid replacement? Lactated ringers. Very good. Again, if you like just this little way of quizzing, I want you to check out Study Sesh. We have entire episodes where it's just me quizzing you on all kinds of topics, mostly related to med surge. There's some pharmacology, there's pediatrics, there's a whole bunch of things. I will put the link in the show notes so you can go check it out and see what is included. There's also some other types of lessons, some drills, some case studies, things like that. Mostly though, it's pod quizzes. So I hope to see you over there at Study Sesh. So there you have it, you guys, your kind of brief, maybe not so brief introduction to burn nursing. It's fascinating. It's highly complex. There's so, so much more that goes on with taking care of these patients, but that's like a general overview that should help you pretty well for your nursing school exams. If you get a chance to do clinical hours like a preceptorship or anything in a burn unit and you are at all interested in this field, I would say definitely, absolutely go for it. If you can handle the heat, okay? If you cannot stand being warm because the room is warm, um, you're wearing a lot of PPE as well on top of that, it can be physically uncomfortable if you're not used to a warm environment. I'm just going to put that out there. But highly worth it, very rewarding, complex. You're helping people who so very much need it. And maybe we'll get a burn nurse on here to talk about their job. That would be cool. I will work on that, you guys. So again, if you want to learn more about the basics of burns, you know, how to calculate total body surface area, for example, we talk about that in episode 149. So I want you to go and check that out. And then if you're listening to this when it comes out, next week is American Thanksgiving, so pre-happy Thanksgiving. I do have an episode coming out on Thursday, as always, so maybe I'll be talking to you then as well. And then if you've had your eye on Crucial Concepts Boot Camp, it does go on sale on Black Friday. So be on the lookout for information about that. And I will see you back here next week on Thanksgiving, if you're listening in real time, to talk about another one of the secrets of successful nursing students. We're doing this whole series on this. I will be sharing secret number two with you next week. See you then. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. <laughs>